Tonight's talk is about balance. A lot of our practice has to do with this great struggle of chasing after or trying to find or looking for what will give us some lasting happiness. Or maybe it's just avoiding pain, which is the opposite side of the coin of that. Because of delusion, we're often lost in one extreme or the other. We're sometimes not just lost, but we're often imprisoned in one or the other of these extremes. This is what is called samsara. It's being lost in greed or any form of it, pain, uh, avoiding pain or any form of it any form of aversion. It's this hopeless cycle that gets us like we're chasing our tails. We're going around and round in circles, not just in in one sitting or in one life, but if some of us are open to the cycle of births that we have. The Buddha's teaching has to do with recognizing this. It has to do with developing the wisdom to see this clearly, to see the cause of this, to uproot this, and caring for ourselves and others enough to be free from this, to know the way of freedom, so that we can experience a kind of liberation from this endless cycle. What the Buddha taught it's often referred, is often referred to the middle path or the middle way. And when it is spoken about the middle way, it often points to the different ways that we get caught in extremes of our understandings. And sometimes some of these ways are quite intellectually even difficult to grok when you read the Buddha's teachings. But there's one place where it's really easy for us to understand, and that's right in our practice, in our moment-to-moment experience. We begin to see that this not being on the middle path points to the extremes of attachment or aversion that we get caught in. In life, it just makes common sense to walk through life in a balanced way in a middle pathway. So why wouldn't it make sense to us here in practice? We often get lost in one or the other of the extremes. The Buddha spent six years as a wandering ascetic. He did, during that time, very austere kind of practices. And There was a time when he saw that it really didn't lead to any kind of freedom. And what led him to to open to that and to kind of point himself in the direction of a more middle path, a more balanced way of opening to what was happening in the present moment or opening to life or opening to the possibility of liberation was that he remembered a time when he was much younger, when he was a boy, and he was living in the palace with his father and mother. And 
when he sat under a rose apple tree. And it was a very easeful um, thing for him to do, just sit under the rose apple tree. And it, he felt quite open to what was happening, quite with his present experience, very balanced. And so that memory inspired him to leave his ascetic practices and walk more on the middle path, a more balanced way. In the Buddha's time, during his lifetime and during his 40 years of teaching, I hear or I've read that he gave about 84,000 different teachings. And when he was asked once, what is the shortest teaching that you could give, the most concise, to the point, the most important words that you could give that will give me the best advice, one of uh, his followers asked him at that time. And the Buddha answered to, in this way, he said, it's just be mindful. This is the best advice that he could give, just to be mindful. And a lot of times you'll hear us say that in many different ways when you come in for interview. How was it? What was happening? Could you be mindful of it? And we, one of the things about being a teacher is that you have to learn how to ask that question in about a gazillion different ways. (laughs) You know, being spacious and accepting and compassionate and... um, And it used to drive me nuts when I'd go to report to Upandita because I'd forget that that's all he would ask me. Most of the time, 90% of the time, he would ask me if I was being mindful or was I mindful of this or that. I could report to him the most painful dukkha-ridden sitting that I had ever had in my life. I could be down on the ground crying and he would just ask, were you mindful? Or I could report some very euphoric experience where I felt like I was walking on the clouds for a couple of days, and it would be the same thing. Were you mindful? But we forget when we're, when we're lost in something because of delusion, we forget sometimes to be mindful, to be in that place of balance. Nowadays, I wonder, you know, it's, we're getting to be so big on this mindfulness that I hear this phrase a lot. Were you mindful of that? Were you mindful of that? And a lot of times I would tell my experience in our spiritual group or to Steve something very deep and emotional for me, like I was sad about this or that or angry about this or that. And his answer would always or most of the time be, were you mindful of that? <laughs> and it's getting to be, you know, like you feel stupid because <laughs> you're not. <laughs> but it's true. We're kind of, you know, lost once in a while. And um, it's getting to be like that phrase, it's your karma, you know, where you, you don't have to be Catholic or Jewish to feel guilty about having karma. You just, when somebody says, were you mindful? It grabs you, and um, after a little while, you know, it puts you back in the middle, puts you back in the center of things. 
Mindfulness is likened to a mirror. And we'll talk about mindfulness more in depth at, at, an, at another time. And indeed, we talk about it and practice it every day. But just in short and in general, mindfulness is like a mirror. This is what it's likened to. It simply reflects what's in front of it without any kind of coloring, without any kind of filter. It reflects what's in front of it without grabbing out to hold on to it or without pushing it away. It simply reflects. So there's clarity in a moment of mindfulness, mirror-like clarity, crystal-like clarity. And there's also this um, absence of greed, absence of any kind of, any form of attachment. There's absence of any form of aversion in one moment of mindfulness. And this moment is the most balanced place to be. When we talk about freedom, this is what freedom is in our day-to-day experience. Freedom is this ability to stay in this balanced place of mindfulness where there is complete clarity, moment-to-moment clarity, There's this ability with that clarity to be very intimate with one's experience. It's not that you're pushing experience away or hiding from it somehow uh, or separating yourself from it. You feel very, very intimate with the experience, very, very close with the experience, and yet one is not caught in it. When I've read about the Buddha's teaching and look closely, I sometimes feel like I'm looking for some hidden way or some magical potion or some higher teaching. But really it all comes down to this, to mindfulness or awareness of whatever's happening. It always comes back to that kind of simplicity of awareness. And we can get, sometimes we can get awfully confused by, you know, all of the instructions and all of the different terminology and uh, the different ways of expressing the Dharma. But it really all comes back to the simplicity of being open to, being aware of one's moment-to-moment experience in the most balanced way we can. One of the um, sayings that has kind of uh, inspired me to write about or to speak about balance more is this passage from the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the kindred sayings of the Buddha. And here it's asking the Buddha how he crossed the flood of samsara. Sometimes samsara is talked about as the flood, the cycle of suffering. So it's asked here in this uh, Samyutta Nikaya, how, Lord, did you cross the flood? And the Buddha answered, without tarrying, friend, and without struggle did I cross the flood. When I tarried, I sank. When struggling, I was swept away. So, friend, it is by not tarrying 
and without struggle did I cross the flood of samsara. To tarry means to linger in expectation, and to struggle means to be strongly motivated by striving. So here in, in, this, in these words of the Buddha, he pointed here again to the middle path without struggling with what's happening, without striving to attain anything different than what is in the present moment. We learn that when we hold on, when we're attached to whatever it is, whatever's pleasant, there is a struggle. We learn over and over again in our practice that what, whatever is unpleasant that we push away, that's a struggle. And when we don't pay attention, when we allow delusion to set in in full force, that's a struggle too. So how can we not struggle? When I look at some of the ways that I've been lost or felt imprisoned myself, not really in balance, these are all ways that point to uh, not being mindful. When I'm lost in the past or in the future, mindfulness isn't there. When mindfulness is there, it's the present moment that's in full view. When I'm striving too much, when I can feel kind of that tightness and tautness of energy of just wanting to be in a place where I'm really not, not open to what's happening in the present moment. And when I realize that it's, it's just striving or it's just tightness or tautness in the body, just tension, just uh, kind of leaning too much into the future. When I notice the moment that it's noticed with mindful awareness, it brings me back into balance into the present moment. Whenever I feel like I'm too laid back, there's not enough energy to really be with what's happening. When I feel what it feels like to be too laid back, whatever it is, spaced in or spaced out, or it might be something more gross, like not, you know, not doing the sitting or the walking in the way that I know I could if I have enough energy. Just feeling viscerally how that feels. The effort to really be with that, whatever it feels like to be that way, just that effort, that effort of being mindful and modulating the energy, whether it's striving or being too laid back, it just has this natural way of modulating our energy. And we're back in the center, we're back in balance. Lost in thinking, as soon as we're mindful of that thinking process, what happens? It's such a great relief. It, it, if we're really careful and we really notice, there's this kind of subtle happiness that comes when you note thinking, the process of thinking, and or you notice it. You may not note it, but you notice it. And all of a sudden, you're back in the present moment. And it's this great relief. It feels like a moment of liberation. 
back in balance again. Or maybe it's lost in some emotional state. It's such a great relief to be on the middle path. It brings a kind of happiness that gives us the confidence to keep going. In that moment, in just in one moment of bringing awareness to whatever is happening, we can be close to whatever is happening, and yet our energy is not lost in it. We can feel very stabilized. Our energy can feel very stabilized in awareness, in mindfulness. And it's a great freedom to feel that. There's a wonderful uh, story that I read some time ago, and I remembered this when I was preparing this talk. It's from the uh, book compiled by Jack Cornfield, A Still Forest Pool. And it's about the teachings of his teacher, Achan Cha. So the name of this story is Go Left, Go Right. A Western monk at Wat Ba Pong became frustrated by the difficulties of practice and the detailed and seemingly arbitrary rules of conduct the monks had to follow. He began to criticize other monks for sloppy practice and to point the wisdom of and to doubt the wisdom of Achan Shah's teaching. At one point he went to Achan Shah and complained noting that even Achan Shah himself was inconsistent and seemed often to contradict himself in an unenlightened way. <laughs> Achan Shah just laughed and pointed out how much the monk was suffering by trying to judge others around him. Then he complained that his way of teaching is very simple. It's as though I see people walking down a road I know well, he said. To them the way may be unclear. I look up and see someone about to fall into a ditch on the right-hand side of the road. So I call out to him, go left, go left. Similarly, if I see another person about to fall into the ditch on the left, I call out to him, go right, go right. This is the extent of my teaching. Whatever extreme you get caught in, whatever you get attached to, I say, let go of that too. Let go on the left. Let go on the right. Come back to the center and you'll arrive at the true Dharma. And I know it can seem like that too. Sometimes when I sit and I hear uh, the questions and answers and somebody asks a question and the answer that's given is completely opposite of the advice I may have given to that very same yogi. <laughs> And it sounds like we're contradicting each other. But really, uh, it's a moment-to-moment -moment understanding and sensitivity to what needs to happen. Sometimes we need to get close to the experience. Sometimes we need to back off from the intensity of the experience. A lot depends on how much energy we have to come closer to it, or if there's a lack of energy, mental energy, or courage or a lack of compassion temporarily, then we need to back off. It's kind of an art 
to stay balanced, to really stay sensitive to what's happening and to know what to do in that sensitivity. And a lot of what we do as yogis and what we try to empower you to do as as teachers and your spiritual friends is to find that way for yourselves, to understand how to come to the middle path for yourselves, to know and to be that sensitive to what you need to do for your practice moment to moment. There's something that Manindra said that many of us mentioned during Dharma talks and when he speaks or when he would speak with us about our practice, he would say something like, the Buddha solved his problem, but you have to solve your own. And sometimes that can be a little bit intimidating, but when you look at it more deeply, it's really empowering. And it's something that I love so much about this particular tradition that we practice at this time here, is that our teachers are mostly very empowering uh, towards us, with us. Even when I would try to get close to uh, my other teacher, for example, Upandita, the, the fan would always go up metaphorically. And I would always feel that it wasn't really just um, not letting me feel his compassion, because I did very deeply. But it was more like he wanted me to feel that compassion in my own heart, to feel that courage that I had myself to get connected with that kind of strength and sensitivity I needed to be balanced in my own unique way. It's such a dynamic process, this sensitivity to the balance that we need. It's a dynamic process because life is constantly moving around us and within us. And what we need one moment may not be what we need, you know, in the next sitting. And so it requires of us this kind of open sensitivity to what's happening. It's very delicate. It's, you know, the body is in this constant state of homeostasis, of balancing itself. But it, it just seems like we've gotten to the point in our evolution where we need to have this kind of intentional homeostasis, where we get intentionally aware of what's going on, and we intentionally know how to balance what we need to do to balance. There's a a place where Steve and I like to um, snorkel on Maui, and it's called the aquarium. It's it's like a lagoon. It's not a very big place. It might be just as big as this whole hall. And uh, we often like to go there because it's it's safe there. It's closed off. Um, Most of it's closed off. But when it's high tide, the waves go over this kind of, this coral reef that goes out that protects it. And it's only open in a very small area, probably um, as big as half of this room, the width of this room. And so it's wonderful to, 
to go snorkeling there. There are literally thousands, thousands of fish there of all different colors. And once uh, Steve pointed out to me while we were snorkeling um, about the school of fish that was there, kind of near the opening to where um, the lagoon and, and the ocean met. And so he was telling me that he was there with this large school of fish, hundreds of fish, kind of swimming right amongst them. If you're, if you're really, really quiet, you can be right amongst them. And they, they kind of think maybe you're a turtle or something. So <laughs> it's really fun to, to do that. And um, so I went once to see what he was talking about. And he, he was talking about how this, there's this dynamic stillness that they, they have. And when you look close, you see that here are these fish and these, these waves are constantly coming in, the, the waves of the ocean and the currents of, that come in from the ocean. And they seem to always stay steady in one place. They seem to have this balance. You know, they don't get flipped over by the currents and even though they're quite at the top and they don't get pushed in, they stay. There's a school of fish that likes to stay uh, at the opening of that of that lagoon. And so I went to look closely one time and for myself I could see, yeah, here they were, these silver glittering fish in at the kind of the the top of the the water there. And their their fins and their tails were moving quite a bit, you know, just to keep them stabilized. Just being sensitive to every movement of the current of that water everything that would come near it. And they were able to, they're able to just stay there without getting kind of tipped over, pushed about. And when I looked at myself, that's what I was doing too, you know, constantly moving my legs and my hands to stay very stable there. This is what it takes, you know, to, to be in that balanced place this kind of dynamic um, process of being in the present moment. It takes this kind of constancy and continuity. You know, we, we feel like we're, we're kind of hit off-center and then we have to come back to the present moment or come back to uh, with mindfulness. And we're doing this moment by moment over and over again. It's important to remain relaxed, to rest in this present moment, to rest in mindfulness, to kind of relax into it. If we're hypervigilant, it doesn't work. If we're too loose, it doesn't work. It requires this kind of relaxed vigilance, this relaxed energy. It's like a delicate dance in this very beautiful place, which can be in the midst of chaos. It's like resting in chaos. Something that Rilke said, this is part of a long writing. I am, I am the rest between two notes. 
which are somehow always in discord. But the song goes on, beautiful. And we see this is the way that when we're constantly being, bringing attention to whatever's happening, we're constantly being mindful, we can feel rested between the two extremes. We can feel rested between these two notes of discord. And it's okay, and it can go on and on and on. And the beauty of it is resting in that place. And it can be really beautiful to experience that, to rest in that awareness, to relax in that chaos. Manindra used to always tell me, you know, when I, um, there were times that he'd stay with our family and, um, and he would say that, you know, we'd, we'd take care of him and um, feed him and, um, take and offer him medical help and all of that when he was with us. And he would say that the only thing that I could offer you is the Dhamma, and that would be his dana. He's, and every morning he would say, may I offer you the Dhamma? This is the dana, the generosity that I could practice with you because you practice generosity with me. And, well, it's not the, the, the Dhamma isn't like just the Dhamma. It's, <laughs> I was so grateful to have that time with him when I could. But he would, um, we'd get up early in the morning before I'd need to prepare back breakfast or go to work. And we do sitting together and then he would do some chanting and then he would uh, try to teach me some suttas or the Abhidhamma. And I tried during those days, I, I think somehow it all got stored in here because somehow it gets lifted out when I need it. But I didn't study it like a scholar. And oftentimes I would get really confused and it would be just too much for kind of a, a simple householder like myself. And I'd say, I, I just, it's too much, Muniji, it's just too much. And he'd say, all you have to do then is be mindful. Because when mindfulness is there, all the other qualities, the wholesome qualities of mind that you need to develop for liberation are nearby. They're just, they're like a family. And, you know, they, they stick together. So just concentrate on being mindful and everything else will come to you. So many of the beautiful qualities we talk about here and we actually cultivate pointedly here like loving kindness or sympathetic joy, compassion, there's rectitude of mind, pliancy of mind. There are about 24 beautiful qualities of mind that are the family that come around mindfulness. One of them is equanimity, one of the beautiful qualities. Equanimity is sometimes spoken of as a balance. That's not all it is. It's much, much more than that. And we'll speak and practice that later in the retreat. 
But one way of describing it is it's this spacious stillness, this spacious, balanced stillness. It's spacious because when we're when equanimity is there, the mind is very big. It doesn't push away anything. It allows it to be there with mindfulness. The pleasant and the unpleasant can be there almost simultaneously. And indeed, many of us have experienced that, how that can happen. Although the pleasant and the unpleasant or the liking and disliking, greed or aversion can be there, the mind doesn't incline to one of those extremes or another. It stays pretty spacious, pretty balanced, pretty still. This is what equanimity does. It's like a very big sky that holds everything. The one thing about equanimity when mindfulness is present and we begin to develop some wisdom is that it's able to see the impermanent nature of everything that comes in its presence in this spacious sky of equanimity. Mindfulness, equanimity, and wisdom all work together to experience deeply that impermanence. We all know how sometimes the pain can get so intense in the body, or maybe it's in the heart-mind, and yet we're able to be with it somehow. And this ability to be with it almost has this very pleasant quality to it. So simultaneously, there's this extremely, at times, unpleasant quality of whatever the painful experience is. And then there's this almost pleasant quality of interest that we take in it. This is when mindfulness and equanimity are working together. And the mind is able to hold both at the same time. And there's a balance there going on. The other day when I was sitting here, I had this um, tickle come in the throat and it developed into this really incredible strong urge to cough. And um, at that time, Steve was speaking and I didn't want to interrupt the talk. And so it was tortuous. It was tortuously unpleasant. And so there was this very strong determination to just be with the sensations of the burning sensations in the throat, feel that tickle that felt like it was going to drive me crazy and the burning going up and down my throat and could almost feel like the the mucus forming the warmth and and just being with that it, it took about two minutes or three minutes and then the, all of a sudden arose this very pleasant simultaneous quality of the ability to be with that both at the same time And this is what equanimity enables us to do, for both to be there and not to be imbalanced or turned around 
by it. Some of the ways that we may feel that equanimity is present or this balance of in our practice is present is and I'd like to give a couple of metaphors. It's when we may be sitting there and some strong experience keeps coming and going, whether it's in the body or in the heart or mind. And all of a sudden we drop into this place where we feel like we're not being pushed or pulled by anything that's happening. And it's almost like we're able to sit on a bank of on the bank of this river of this flow of experience and we're able to just observe what's happening and it's pre- it's observed with a lot of clarity just watching what is in that current and it could be pleasant or unpleasant but we're quite stable on this bank of the river and there are times when we can almost call this up, call this place of equanimity, call this strength of equanimity up. And sometimes where I've been able to do that by just calling up this kind of picture of this river and this ability of mindfulness to just stay steady, observing what comes and goes down the river. When you watch very closely, you see that uh, the mindfulness comes and goes too. There's a steadiness of it being present, but it's not some permanent entity at the side of the river. Another metaphor that we sometimes feel when there's a lot of equanimity, it's like being in an ocean or being um, at the when you go out to the ocean from the shoreline and you're at this place near the shoreline where the waves aren't tumbling you in but you can see where the waves and the swells are just beginning to form into a wave into um, kind of the white part of the wave that tumbles over and washes onto the sand and when you're that when you're that far out of the shoreline, you can feel the current of the wave go right through you. You almost feel it viscerally. You feel the warmth of the ocean. You feel the, the energy of the wave. And you can be that intimate with it. And yet, you don't feel like you're washed about to and fro. You don't feel like you're tumbled about by it. It might be this kind of very close, intimate feeling where it's you're feeling a wave of emotion go right through you. But your your, uh, energy is not in the object of your attention. Your energy is not lost in the emotion your energy is very stable in the awareness of the emotion, which is a very different thing. It's a very different experience. You can be that close to it, but feel quite stabilized in the awareness of whatever it is. There's a term 
um, that I came across when I was looking up balance in some of the Abhidhamma books that we have. And the term is Indriya Samatha. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it doesn't matter. It means equilibrium, balance, or the harmony of faculties. And this particular term, Indriya Samatha, relates to the five spiritual faculties or five spiritual powers. And these are the faculties that we're all developing here that lead us to freedom, lead us to liberation. These faculties or powers are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Each of us here are developing that, cultivating that. We each have the seed of that within us. And many of us have those qualities developed quite a bit. It's just a matter of getting them in balance. And if you notice, mindfulness is right in the center of those. Of all of these, there are two pairs of these faculties that should counterbalance each other. And a lot of our practice is getting these into balance with each other. The two pairs are faith and wisdom, energy and concentration. Those are the two pairs. If we have excessive faith and a deficiency of wisdom, it leads to blind belief. When we talk about wisdom here, it means the experiential understanding of the impermanent, selfless, unsatisfactory nature of life. So when we have deficient direct experience of this and excessive belief, it leads to blind faith. When we have excessive wisdom, and deficient faith. And here, probably wisdom refers to intellectual understanding. It leads to a cunning. This is what it says in the text, where we let our head take over. And there's this over-intellectualization of what we believe in to be true. When there's a lot of energy and weak concentration, it leads to restlessness. When there's strong concentration and deficient energy, it leads to indolence. It's not necessary to kind of weigh out what's happening in our practice. If we're just mindful, mindfulness has a way of organically balancing all of these in the right way. Mindfulness is like a refuge. This place of being in the center in balance is like a refuge. It's like a protection to us. There's a place, um, well, all around Maui, where we live. Maui County is comprised of three islands, Maui, um, Molokai, and Lanai. Lanai. And then there's these 
smaller uninhabited islands of Molokini and uh, Kaho'olawe. And these five islands kind of form a sanctuary around a body of water. And they've named this uh, place a whale sanctuary. And there are actually federal laws protecting this area. In this sanctuary, uh, these what these laws help to do, uh, because there are whales there that that are being protected, what these laws help to do is keep a lot of the motorcraft away from the whales. You can only get so close to them. You can't get really close, or else you get really fined. And um, uh, there are many pollution, there's many ways of not polluting or not fishing in certain ways that protect this area. And so when, you, when you're sailing in this area, you, you feel the kind of safety and um, you feel the great presence of these whales, these hunchback whales there, humpback whales, because of this great refuge that it is. It's a great feeling of safety. And it's right here in this area, and all, al- all around Hawaii actually, that the whales mate and they also give birth and feed their young until the young are able enough to take the journey back to the north. Every uh, whale season, Steve and I try to go out and Everyone feels the, the presence of these whales so powerfully. They're quite, um, they're like part of our community. And recently, well, it was last year we went out on this sail where a girlfriend of ours, a friend of ours, had a birthday party. And um, she made it a, a cruise, kind of a whale cruise. And we went on this cruise and there was this band playing. And at first, you know, you want to hear the sound of the water and be peaceful. And there was this kind of rock and roll band playing. And later on, it it got quite interesting. We noticed that when they played certain music, the whales would all jump around in the water. (laughs) And they'd, you know, they'd come out and they'd make... They do these great big, you know, leaps up in the air, and or they put their flippers out and they'd go. There's a certain thing that they do and they flap, and that means they're really happy. And you'd see the mama going up, and the, you know, the whole they swim in pods, and you'd see them all going up and going down, almost, you know, in unison. And later, Steve was asking, well, what what music did they like? And um, they like Grateful Dead music. <laughs> and yeah, I was going to say, and they like Santana a lot. <laughs> so they, they like to play this kind of music on the boat, a lot. The, the song, You've Got to Change Your Evil Ways. You know? And so when they played that song over and over again, the whales had just come up and just this playfulness, you know. And you feel quite a sense of, of freedom and, um, you know, the freedom to just kind of open to whatever is there. It takes that kind of safety 
to feel the kind of freedom to be vulnerable, to really give ourselves permission to do that, to feel vulnerable. And that's what the power of mindfulness does. It gives us this refuge, this feeling of protection, so that we can feel vulnerable, so that those places of our vulnerability we can touch into. Because there's a place where we get gather this strength, where somehow deep within us we know that we won't violate it further, you know, by going to one extreme. We can open to that place. So what mindfulness does is give us this safety. It's like a gift to us, this place of safety amidst the chaos of our lives, our inner lives, and our outer lives. We saw a movie um, before we came here, and um, in that movie, it, it was an awful movie, but there was one line, it was a gem that was worth the whole movie. And it was this woman in the movie. She was the most aversive character I had ever experienced. She was so aversive that I just completely believed it and I wanted to get up and walk out so many times. But she said this one line that was so uh, amazing and so it made me watch more. She said, I'm not strong enough to feel vulnerable. And she was this, you know, very defended, very bitter, very aggressive, very aversive. And she said, I'm not strong enough to feel vulnerable. And it really takes a kind of strength, you know, that kind of um, openness, which is a kind of strength. This sensitive skill of being in balance, of allowing ourselves to relax into awareness, to take refuge in awareness, to rest in it, requires us to have this constant continuity. And every time we have this constant continuity of being mindful, it gives us great faith and courage to keep continuing. It's really um, a kind of walking, this very sensitive tightrope sometimes, or um, ridge line, and not letting ourselves fall to one side or the other being really relaxed and vigilant at the same time. There's a place where um, in Maui, there's Maui said to have many different climates and terrains, um, kind of almost all the kinds you can find anywhere in the world. It even snows at the top of Haleakala. So there's very uh, places where there's a desert and there's places where there's thick jungle forests. And there's particular area where we hike in the bamboo forests where 
uh, we hike on these trails. It's called the East Maui Irrigation Trails. And you're actually, it, you're not supposed to go there. But if you're local and the, the authorities find you there, it's fine. They, they just let you go on. And one time I was hiking with a girlfriend of mine through the bamboo forests. And the trails kind of go in from the road and go up the valleys and mountains and then around and then come back onto the road. And it got to raining really hard on one of these hikes. And we were in a, a rainforest. And so the, a lot of the rain was coming through the, down the waterfalls and through the creeks and rivers. And it got to be quite uh, torrential. And uh, the, we got to a place that we couldn't go back the way we came because one of the things that we had to do in order to get to that place was we had to cross some rocks that were shallow um, that we know now weren't shallow and there might be a really gushing stream and people have been known to drown uh, in those streams or get washed out to the ocean. So um, we decided that a shorter way to go would be to just continue where we were going and get back on the road. Well, in order to continue, we had to cross this, uh, this plank, and it wasn't really that wide. It was like a, a four-inch beam that went across this gulch. And, um, and down below, this water was rushing, and there were boulders and rocks, and everything was quite high. And she's, this one of my friends is like the Amazon woman, and she just, she just goes through anything. She climbs mountains, and um, it, it's really hard to keep up with her. And so she was crossing, going across, just nimbly, you know. And I, this is not something I'm used to doing. <laughs> and so I was looking at that four-inch beam, and a lot of fear was arising, you know, and a lot of thoughts that I could fall, and even the thoughts of what would my, what would happen to my children, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I realized that it wasn't possible for me to go back or to go forward unless I could just really relax and walk on that beam with a kind of balance that wasn't too tight or wasn't too loose. And so with a few breaths, you know, about five or ten minutes, I was finally able to, <laughs> to walk across. And there were so many times when I could just fear, uh, feel the tension and rigidity and the overwhelming fear start to encroach. And it was this constant calling up of the practice and being mindful of what's happening and resting in that moment of balance. And it took a moment-to-moment-to-moment ability to do that in order to get to the other side. And that's what it has, we have to do sometimes, allow ourselves this ability to do that moment-to-moment. If I looked at the other side and I thought, that's where I want to get and rushed over, I'd have fallen. If I was too slow and pondered too much, I would have fallen.
The Buddha talked a lot about the vicissitudes of life, the eight vicissitudes of life, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, happiness and sorrow. And we feel that, of course, in life. That's how it is. And we can see in our practice, we see we're very, very close to that in our practice. One of the great things that helps us on the path, one of the great ways that we can rest our wisdom in is the understanding of impermanence. And when we're in this place of balance, in this resting our attention, our energy in mindfulness, in awareness, we're able to see this. And this is what cultivates wisdom, the ability to experience in ever-deepening ways impermanence. There's a story that speaks to this. And um, it has to do with sometimes if we look at our experience and we see that sometimes we have experiences that are so pleasurable. They're so pleasurable. And we think that they're permanent. And we think that they'll last forever. And then we become, we feel like we're invincible. And our practice just goes down the drain. We stop being continuously aware, continuously mindful. Or maybe when we're having unpleasant experiences. And then we begin to think that those are permanent. And then we get really weary and we want to give up. And our practice then goes down the drain in another way, through another extreme. Because we see or we want or we believe that these experiences are permanent. But when we see that they're not, we can live with some kind of freedom in this world. And this is what freedom means, as we keep talking about. It doesn't mean that we don't experience gain and loss. We don't experience, we, we don't get um, um, beat around by it. It means that we're free from our reaction to it. We stay centered in awareness. There's a story of a wise old man who lived in a village with his family. And the villagers uh, looked up to him and came to him often for advice. And so this wise old man and his family got a new horse once. And so the villagers came to him and said, oh, this is wonderful, this is great. And were, they were so enthusiastic and said, this is good. And with this horse, you can do many things. And you know, you're, you're, you'll have many crops and you'll have a lot of uh, money and a lot of security for your family, etc., etc." And the wise old man said, we'll see, we'll see. And so time went by and the horse ran away. 
and he didn't have the horse. The family didn't have the horse anyway anymore. And the villagers came and said, oh, this is bad, this is bad. Uh, you lost your horse. This means that you're going to lose, you know, your crops, uh, being able to uh, stay with your crops and uh, the ramifications that it will have on your family and this and that and this and that. And the wise old man just said, well, we'll see. And then they got a new one, a new horse. And the villagers said, whoa, this is good, very good, very good. And on and on with all their opinions and extrapolating that out to the future. And the wise old man just said, we'll see, we'll see. And then his young boy who was riding the horse, taming the horse, fell off the horse and broke his leg. And the villagers came again and said, this is bad, this is bad. And the wise old man said, we'll see. And then there was an army. There was a war and the army came and tried to recruit the young son, but couldn't because the young son had a broken leg and he couldn't go. And the villagers said, this is good, this is good. And the wise old man just said, we'll see. Deeply knowing, deeply understanding the impermanence of life, and here we have that chance to experience it even more deeply. There's a beautiful poem that I found in these collected poems of Wendell Berry that speaks to this place of rest amongst the chaos that I'd like to end with. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the place of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. So let's rest in this grace of awareness for a minute and let all the world words go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.
donate.